Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Ben Brown came into the public eye in late 2020 when he spoke out against COVID-19 restrictions. And the Washington Republican used that advocacy as a driving force to run and win in a tough GOP primary for a Missouri Senate seat. Brown joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about why he prevailed in the hotly contested 26th district race and what he wants to accomplish in the Missouri Senate. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio's state house and politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us in studio in St. Louis, he was the winner of the highly competitive 26th District Senate race Republican primary. Ben Brown, great to be here. Great to have you. I saw you at an event for Eric Schmidt, and I think that I mentioned that if you won your primary, you were going to get to come on the podcast, which is clearly the reason you ran for the Senate, right? Oh, yeah, of course. course. Absolutely. I think this is an instance where, like, the candidate's biography is especially interesting. So I want you to talk about, like, a little bit about who you are and how you got involved in politics. Sure. So uh, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'd been involved... um, To an extent, but more at the grassroots level, I was a member of the Franklin County Republican Central Committee. I had been involved with the the St. Louis Young Republicans and statewide organization and uh, was the national committee man for the state of Missouri for the Young Republicans, but had no intention of running for office, certainly nothing this ambitious. I had never even given a, a public speech two years ago, so it was certainly a transformational couple years. Yeah, and you you segued very nicely. Um, before you announced your run for the 26th district Senate seat, you came to prominence because you were an outspoken opponent of St. Louis County Executive Sam Page's COVID-19 restrictions. Here is actually a clip of you in December 2020 uh, speaking at a press conference for legislation aimed at curbing such regulations. In order for my restaurant to stay afloat on just takeout and delivery sales, we would have to lay off approximately half of our staff. Now, if you were to scale that out across all the restaurants in the county, that would indicate thousands of people could have potentially already been laid off because of this order. These are mothers and fathers with mortgages and mouths to feed. These are college students living paycheck to paycheck. The damage inflicted by this order is very real. However, the data to support it appears to be non-existent. So just to 
provide some context. You're an owner of Satchmo's Bar and Grill in Chesterfield, correct? Correct. And how, how long have you been in the restaurant business for? Uh, I, I say I took over the business in 2013. So kind of explain like why you decided to get involved in this anti-COVID-19 restriction advocacy space. Well, you know, I, I I felt very protective of my industry. The restaurant industry was hit particularly hard, uh, as were all small businesses. And it just seemed and felt wrong what was happening. In the weeks leading up to when they announced they were shutting down restaurants in St. Louis County, the county executive would go out there to the podium and explain that uh, the main driver of new spread was actually small gatherings and homes, not businesses. They would say that that uh, you know, his own leader of pandemic task force came out and said that shutting down restaurants at this point would do nothing to slow the spread because it was already too widespread in the community. And then they come out and announce they're shutting down the restaurants anyways. And it just it seemed to be politically motivated. For all the talk you would hear about following the science, it seemed to be really contradictory to that. And I decided I needed to take a stand. And everyone, I think, has certain pivotal moments in their life they look back upon that kind of set them on a course. And this was one for me. I remember when the announcement was made that they were shutting down the restaurants. It was a few days before it took effect. I started making a lot of noise on social media, reaching out to other restaurant owners, saying, hey, this is going to continue as long as we allow it. We need to do something. We need to take a stand. Did you make that that noise like at the beginning of the pandemic or are you talking more about like late 2020 when the restaurants were shut down again? So this is in November of 2020. Because I think that there was consensus in March of 2020 that we don't know a lot about this virus. We need to like be in our houses for a few weeks. I don't think I think that was like. Across the political spectrum, that was the the consensus. I think you started seeing a lot of divergence in late 2020, basically. Continue. Yeah, and that was really the thing. And the fact that none of the surrounding cities or counties, no other city or county in the entire state was following suit with this. So all it was doing is pushing people to go to travel to restaurants in St. Charles County, Franklin County, other areas like that. And... I just I felt like it was wrong. I I made uh, a lot of noise about how I would not be complying. And then the day the order took effect actually came around. And I'll never forget this morning. I was sitting at my kitchen table working on my computer and I got a text from a reporter from KMOV uh, here in St. Louis asking if we followed through and kept our restaurant open. I, I said, of course, we're still open. And she then asked me if she could meet me in my dining room to to shoot the to film the dining room full of customers and have me explain my reasons why. So at this point, I'm thinking, oh, boy, you know, it's one thing to talk about defying an order. It's another to go on television and say, you know, here I am. Come and get me. But then I looked over on the couch and I saw my four-year-old sitting there just, you know, watching television. And it got me thinking. I started thinking about how this is actually a legitimately historic time that we're living through right now. And someday my kids are going to ask me what my role was through all this. Am I going to have to say that, you know, I did what everyone else was doing? I, I, I... I took the easy choice and, and went along because I didn't know better? Or am I going to be able to say that I took a stand, I, I made the hard choice and stood up for what I believed was right? Right then and there, I flipped the switch and I knew that, you know, despite whatever consequences came my way, this is the path that I needed to pursue. And I followed it all the way to what ended up leading me to a state <laughs> Senate run. You were also involved in a lawsuit that curbed counties' abilities to impose COVID-19 related restrictions. Why do you feel it was important for you to get involved in that? 
Correct, yeah. And uh, initially, when they, they tried shutting down the restaurants, the first lawsuit I banded together with about 40 other restaurants in the Missouri Restaurant Association. We filed a lawsuit against St. Louis County, uh, seeking a temporary restraining order against the order, but we weren't able to secure that. So we kind of changed strategies and pursued this other case where we uh, filed a suit directly against Missouri's Department of Health and Senior Services, challenging the constitutional authority of them to do any of this in the first place. And it took about a year to get anywhere, but in the end we won, and we saw that it had a pretty substantial effect. And, uh, you know, the Attorney General kind of kind of really picked up on it and was actually going around enforcing compliance with all these school districts to eliminate mass mandates. And my hope is that this will prevent any kind of abuse like this in the future. Well, there was a lot of conjecture that this lawsuit hurt county health department's ability to order, you know, to issue orders unrelated to COVID-19. What's your feeling about that? Well, I know there was some there were some discrepancies about how that would how that was being interpreted. And so, you know, I, I'll leave the interpretation of all the details to the legal scholars. But I think the government's primary role, first and foremost, is to defend the rights of the people. And I felt that there was a responsibility here because these powers were being abused, not just in the you know, I, I don't need to just make the case that they were being used for political reasons. But in the case of my restaurant, the day of that press conference, the health department showed up just hours later, hours after that speech aired, saying they were suspending our permit, declaring us a hazard to public health. When our attorney reached out asking about this unlawful suspension, the response was that it didn't matter because they would amend the charge mid-hearing till they found something to get us with. So what is interesting about this is at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in Missouri, Governor Mike Parson tended to shy away from statewide restrictions generally and instead gave local governments like St. Louis County the ability to implement them. And it's obviously we can play Monday morning quarterback on COVID-19 till the end of time. But do you think that was a mistake for the governor to do that? Well, you know, I don't think that anyone could have foreseen that that would translate to an acting director of health, essentially creating 400 pages of law without any oversight, uh, any accountability, any opportunity for public comment. So, you know, hindsight's hindsight's 2020. I I, I know it's really hard to criticize just when you had to make those decisions with information that was known at the time. My hope is that if something like this were to happen again, that, you know, different decisions would have been made. You know, it's really been interesting to see how public opinion has shifted on restrictions. And I'll be transparent. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I was very probably more for restrictions than maybe I am now because vaccines have come about and there's been a lot more research about like what the effect of COVID-19 is. I mean, I live in Richmond Heights, which is a pretty like restriction favorable area, but I've seen fewer and fewer people wear masks, say, at the grocery store. What has been kind of your perception about how public opinion has drifted on this issue of restrictions? Well, you know, unfortunately, an important part of of preserving public health is maintaining that trust between the public health officials and those they are meant to represent. And there has just been so much damage done to that trust. And the perfect examples are, are right here in the St. Louis area. We saw uh, not only were decisions being made that contradicted statements made by the county executive and uh, pandemic task force leader in the weeks prior, but you had other issues that really distracted away. You saw with uh, uh, 
uh, Khan, when he made the accusations about the racist mob that shoulder bumped him and he ended up flipping off one of the uh, one of the uh, St. Louis County constituents that was in the area, we ended up seeing afterwards that that was completely false. There was video footage of him leaving the chambers all the way down to the parking lot, yet he went on national news and went out and pretty much bashed the people of St. Louis County that were in that group. Things like that are very destructive to people's trust. And if you want, if you think the best way out of the pandemic was to get people to buy into taking this vaccine, then that is the absolute last thing that you should want. So why did you end up deciding to run for the Missouri Senate? <clears throat> well, you know, in the time that followed that press conference, I, I began getting much more engaged, traveling to the Capitol, testifying at committee hearings in the House and the Senate. And, you know, the first attempt to get legislation passed that would rein some of these orders in, restore oversight to that process, failed. And I, I, I traveled there and I met with some of the senators that voted against it. And just the responses I was getting as as far as why they voted that way just it really just didn't didn't sit too well with me. It, I, you, I, that was the first time I really realized that that some of these legislators might one all, might not always vote based on just the specifics of the policy. There were a lot of uh, you know personal things involved also who was involved in the bill, and it just it didn't it didn't seem right to me. And I just I wanted to get involved and just try to try to do a better job and and get real substantial things done for the people of our state. You ran against four other candidates, including a prominent businessman and a state representative. Why do you think you ended up winning? Well, I think that my message really resonated well. I, you know, a lot of people, you generally when you have a candidate, you only have their words to go off of, and you don't really know whether they're going to follow through once they're in office. I think that what was, what was different with me is that people were able to see a, a two-year history of taking action, getting results. And so my words weren't just words. They were backed up by things that I've already done. I've gotten real deliverables for people. I, I've gone out there and, and taken big hits personally, put my neck out there to fight for people's liberties because that's what I believed in. And I think that was what really stood out to people. You're not necessarily a political neophyte, but was there anything about this campaign that surprised you? Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, I, 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 I'm not new enough and naive enough to politics to know that, you know, sometimes things aren't twisted a little here and there, but it's a little different once, you know, you get the attack ads coming out and you're you're hearing your name on the radio and getting mail in your mailbox every day and just, yeah, it got, it got pretty, uh. (laughs) Did you get negative mail about yourself to your house? Oh yeah, I did. I did. Was, what was that like? It was it was interesting, you know. At first, you kind of laugh it off. But the first one I got was my face superimposed on a puppet, and I showed it to my wife, and I don't think I heard her crack up that loud in a while. And then, what and were, it, what were you a puppet of? A puppet of uh, what did it say? A puppet of special interests, just uh, obscure special interests. Okay. It's, it, and yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> It was interesting. There was something about how I, I didn't pay my taxes or something and about how I had multiple criminal offenses. I mean, anyone can go on CaseNet and see the only thing I have on my record are was a couple like, of minor driving I was going to say, was it like speeding tickets or something like that? Yeah, I think one. I think I have one speeding ticket from when I was a teenager and another one for staying in the left lane too long. But then they go went from that in the radio ad saying... Uh, he's been in fights. He's been in courtroom conflicts. Well, I was a professional mixed martial artist, so technically I have been in fights. They just, you know, didn't mention the fact that they were professional sanctioned bouts. How do you campaign for a seat like this, especially since the vast majority of the district is rural, which makes going door to door a lot more difficult than, say, the second district? 
It does, but I wasn't about to let that stop me. You know, I mentioned that I was uh, I was a pro- former professional mixed martial artist. I went into the restaurant business. So either I like taking on difficult challenges or I'm just a glutton for punishment, I guess. But I just did the same things, that, the same blueprint I used that led to success in my athletic career in wrestling, mixed martial arts, and in business. I go out there and I, I outwork my opponents 10 to 1. Back in my wrestling days, it was after practice when people were anywhere rusting. I'd go out and put on the headphones with the Rocky soundtrack and go run an extra five miles. Now it's just going out there and, and knocking doors in 105 degree heat till 8 p.m. Just I wasn't I, I the one thing I knew I could control is that I could outwork my opponents and outwork them by a lot, and that's exactly what I did. So you're facing John Keane in the general election, a Democrat, um, who apparently has played at your restaurant before. According yeah. to the Washington Missourian? Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that until I had the opportunity to speak with him at a couple of the, the more recent candidate forums. And he, he filled me in on that, that apparently he had played in the band a few times in my restaurant. So let's, we're going to probably have him on the podcast at some point because I think it's important for people to hear from both sides. But look, look, I mean, he would probably admit that he's the severe underdog in this race. This district is very Republican. But I think the interesting thing is like, he probably should like work hard because, in my opinion, the only way for Democrats to win the second congressional district in the future, which includes all of Franklin County, is they need to start building organization and inroads in Franklin County. Otherwise, they're going to lose every race, in my opinion. So what, what do you kind of think about how the general election is going to go with that like long term political reality as a backdrop? You know, I think that you have a good point. You have to, uh, if the Democrats want a future out there, and the last thing I want to do is give the the Democrats in Franklin County advice, uh, but, you know, they have to have people that are engaged. And, I mean, that's that's huge for, for both parties in different areas. I mean, same here for the St. Louis area with, with the Republicans. And, you know, the best way to do that, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I don't know what his strategy is for this campaign, but I think just the fact that he ran in the first place is probably a positive that that somebody at least is on the ballot because that's not the case everywhere. We'll be right back after this quick break with Ben Brown, the Republican nominee for the 26th Senatorial District. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Ben Brown. He is the Republican nominee for the 26th Senatorial District, which, by the way, includes a small part of St. Louis County, all of Franklin County, all of Osage County, all of Warren County, and all of Gasconade County. Did I get that right, first of all? Uh, yeah, yeah, I got the St. Louis County portion, Franklin, Warren, Gasconade, Osage. All right. A lot of ground. So, Sarah, I'm going to let you handle the next few questions about the disbandment is that, the, is that a word? Disbandment? I've been saying disbandment, disillusion, ending. Uh, so, yeah. Vanishing <laughs> probably, of the conservative probably caucus. Probably not that. They did end on their own uh, their own terms. So, uh, yes. So, you, you, you did a story on that. So, I'm going to let you handle the questions on I that. Did. So, the conservative caucus announced its disillusion earlier this week. What do you make of that decision? You know, I think it was, I think it was for the best. You know, I... I I consider myself conservative, and I was going to the. Uh, I want to go to Jefferson City to pursue conservative reforms, regardless. 
though i mean everyone can see that the labels you know conservative caucus or what do they want to call it the moderate caucus the rowden caucus those have become a distraction and anytime the conversation's moving to these battles between the different sides and moving away from the actual policy i see that as negative so i think that that you know this this olive branch so whether you know despite how it might be received by some i think that this is what we needed to see you know whether it, it makes a difference in the long run or not you know we don't really know but the one thing we know is that all, well, all i've seen so far is continued escalation that's the first thing i've seen that that really symbolizes an attempt to de-escalate and it's my hope that that uh, you know, Republicans can take this as an opportunity to really come together because I know there is an awful lot of common ground there if we're just willing to look for it. Well, and, and I know this is kind of a moot point now, but it, you know, if you were to win your election in November, you know, would you have joined the caucus? You know, I got I I have been asked that so many times. I'm and sure. <laughs> the, the, the thing that the thing that is frustrating to me is that I don't want to be defined by a label whether the conservative caucus was going to be remain intact or not because people whether if if i were to say i was going to join the conservative caucus there are people that automatically are going to make assumptions as far as what that means who who's going to be you know controlling me or who i'm going to align with and that's never been the case whether i was going to join it or not i'm i'm going there to be my in, my own independent person anyone that's seen anything i've done over the last two years knows that i'm somebody to takes pride in the fact that they get results and that's exactly what I have always intended to do once I go there so you know I'm I am happy that I won't I probably won't be asked that question as much anymore because I, I don't I don't want that to be something that defines me and regardless I'm going to always do what I believe in my heart is right. And whether that means aligning with someone that considers himself a member of the conservative caucus or, or someone else it, that doesn't really matter to me I'm there to pass conservative reforms and do the work for the people of Missouri. Former caucus member Senator Bill Igo actually spoke on kind of the results of the August 2nd primary. And I think we have a, have a clip of that. We feel like we have a, effectively a mandate from uh, the, the Republican electorate that was overwhelmingly supportive of candidates that had precisely the same kind of message that the conservative caucus was talking about for the past four years. So do you agree with that statement? And if so, kind of why disband? Why extend this olive branch? Well, I, I agree that I, I believe it isn't a mandate as far as showing support for conservative policies, whether, you know, I don't know that people went to the ballot box that how many people even knew what what the conservative caucus was and who was a member of that. But I think it does reinforce the desire for Missouri. You know, we're a red state and we want to see a lot of these these reforms that we're seeing in other states that have less of a Republican majority. So do you feel like now that congressional redistricting is over, there can be more of a focus on some of the conservative caucus's priorities? And if so, what are those priorities? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, that redistricting, it, it sucked a lot of oxygen out of the room. It caused a lot of a lot of issues. And I think that really exacerbated the existing conflict that was there between, uh, you know, what some would call the, the conservative caucus wing of the party and people that you might refer to as more moderate I think that just deepened that divide. My hope is that without that being on our plate, that we'll be able to, you know, it will it will take pressure off and allow more time and room to pursue these other conservative goals. So what are some of those goals? Like, like what would be some things that you would want to actually see passed in 2023? Well, here in Missouri, you know, with a Republican supermajority on paper, you know, the fact that 
our growth is stagnant is something that really bothers me. And, you know, being a small business owner coming from that background, there's a lot more that we can be doing. I mean, particularly, you know, I just don't have experience as a small business owner building a business, but I think the experience just specifically in the last couple years is important because trying to navigate all the hurdles a small business owner has to go to in today's day and age is a lot different than it might have looked like just a couple years ago. And so I think that we need to be doing everything we can to create, cultivate an economic environment where small businesses can grow and thrive. I think that there's a lot we can do as far as uh, licensing regulation reform, a lot of redundancies and just extra bloat and obstacles that small business owners just really don't need to be dealing with on top of record inflation, price fluctuations and everything else that we're dealing with today. So you will not be in the legislature uh, when and if Governor Mike Parson calls a special session on tax cuts and agriculture uh, tax credits. But I am interested in kind of what you would want to see there, because first of all, like tax cuts will certainly affect businesses, but your district is overwhelmingly rural. So I think that the agriculture tax credit issue is actually pretty important for the 26th district. What's kind of your thoughts about how that should go? Well, I mean, as far as cutting taxes, I think that that's something we certainly need to need to pursue. And you just see how much our budget's grown in just the last 10 years. I believe it was from around 20 billion to 47 billion. And I think that there's just a lot more that we can be doing for for the taxpayer. You have tens of millions of dollars in various agency positions that they go unfilled. There's, I mean, you could go on and on. There's just we need to we need to have a little more accountability with our government and specifically with how our tax dollars are being spent. You know, I think that regarding uh, agriculture, there's a lot we need to be doing. They're facing a lot of unique challenges too. They're dealing with inflation, but specifically the price of of, of feed and fertilizer has has gone up. That's really really taking a, a big bite in the some of those profit margins. You know, in our state, the average age of a farmer is 58 years old. That's that's going to be a problem. We got to do something to attract and and maintain young families, keep them in these rural areas. You know, I, I there's just a lot of a lot of things we need to do as far as you know the, the tax credit specifically. You know, like any any bill, I don't want to I don't want to state uh, I'm all in for support or opposition until you read the fine lines because often people make their assumptions just based on the headline without looking at the detail. And I believe the devil's in the details, and you got to understand the full implications of any policy. You bring up an interesting point, and it's something that I've been wondering myself. Um, when I travel, especially in southeast Missouri, I particularly go for the state parks, which are some of the most beautiful in the world. There's also some great state parks in Franklin County as, as well. But one of the things you notice is like the more and more rural it gets, you go some, to some of these small towns, which used to have 10, 20,000 people, now have like five. Um, there really isn't a lot of vibrancy in some of the rural parts of the state. Now, obviously, Franklin County has been kind of growing pretty steadily because it's kind of like this mixture of suburban, rural manufacturing. But I don't know, what are what about the rest of the counties in your district? Are they having some of those same issues of keeping younger people there and, and economic growth being, let me, let me rephrase that. Are some of the more rural counties having the, the issues that some of those counties in southeast Missouri having as far as economic growth and keeping people there and if so like what what should be done to reverse that trend so i mean it depends we have such a large geographical area within within our district it does vary a little bit you know like places like warren county are actually 
are doing really, really well with economic development. They're showing a lot of growth, you know, uh, right city area, other areas. And, you know, the biggest thing for them is just having the infrastructure to keep up with that growth. Other areas, you know, I haven't heard as much direct concerns about population leaving areas in Gasconade and Osage County, but they're dealing with a lot of the same same issues that, that other places are with the inflation and, and everything else. It seems that inflation is something that is a really big problem everywhere, but I don't know what state government can do to combat it. Is 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 there anything that state government can do with inflation or is that just a real federal responsibility? Well, yes and no. I mean, there's certain things that are, that are going to happen at the federal level regardless that are going to be outside our control in the state legislature. But you've seen that you know, the federal government's not not the only one that has a bit of a spending problem. I think that at the state level too, that the spending could be could be reined in a little bit, and we certainly don't need to be doing anything to contribute to the issues that we're already seeing. So uh, I want to move on to the upcoming election. So you introduced Attorney General Schmidt before one of his last <laughs> events in Washington, Missouri. Why did you decide to back him over the other major contenders in the race? Well, it, you know, it wasn't the the first time that that I had introduced him actually at a rally. You know, I, I think that uh, Eric and I we've both been involved in some of similar battles. Uh, you know, he was involved with a lot of taking on a lot of the mandates in St. Louis, and I think that our campaigns were probably his campaign was probably the most similar to mine out of any other one in the state that, that I could think of. We we uh, I think we both stood for a lot of the same things, and. Yeah, it just kind of seemed like a natural fit for me. You know, when a lot when we were we were really struggling, you know, not just people in St. Louis County, but throughout the entire area, there were very few elected officials that were there to to, to support us. You know, there were a number of people in the state legislature that were, but by and large part, a lot of them a lot of them didn't want to touch the issue, especially early on. But Attorney General Schmidt was willing to take those on and. That, that made an impact for me, just his willingness to fight for a lot of the same things I was out there fighting for every day. How do you feel that he fares against Trudy Bush Valentine? I mean, you'd have to imagine that he would be a pretty heavy favorite. You know, that's I, you know, I don't know that I, I have enough knowledge about these sort of things to know how much the independent candidate will come into play. John Wood, who we had on the podcast recently, but continue. But, you know, barring any any larger than expected impact from him, I think that that Eric's got to feel pretty good about his chances. There's been some conjecture, primarily from Democrats, that the uh, demise of Roe versus Wade is going to energize Democratic voters, especially female voters. Uh, What do you think about that? You know, it's it's possible, uh, you know, whether it's enough to to make a real impact on this race. Yeah, I just I, I, I don't I don't believe it will to actually sway the election, uh, but I guess we'll, we'll have to see. When you were going door to door, what were people's opinions about, the, you know, basically most abortions being banned in Missouri? Like I've heard uh, – l- let me back up for a second. I think that there's general sentiment in Missouri, especially the more rural you get, that abortion is wrong. But I think that there's also kind of a feeling that banning abortions in most circumstances, including – instances where the person gets pregnant because of rape or incest is just a bridge too far. Like, what were you hearing from people when you were going door to door? You, I mean, it varied to an extent. I mean, some people were absolutely thrilled about it. Others, you know, it, it, they weren't thrilled about the, the extent of uh, the policy that was going into place. 
Uh, so, you know, I think that what really meant a lot to people is that even people that, that I might have disagreed with on some level, I showed that I was willing to listen and show an attempt to, to have some kind of understanding with their point of view. I think that that's, that's really important. I think that's something that's been, been, been missing from the uh, legislative process in our state. And I think that that's one thing I hope that sets me apart from other legislators, that I'm always going to have that willingness and openness to, to listen to somebody and hear them out, even if I might disagree. And what is kind of your position on abortion rights in Missouri? Do you think, do you agree with the trigger law that banned it except for medical emergencies? Or would you, will it be willing to talk about some further exceptions, including rape or incest exceptions? I mean, I'm, I'm always willing to have a conversation, but what I believe in my heart is right is the way the law has now, that, that it's going to be banned, and, except in the case of the medical emergencies. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. If you do win, we'll be having you back to talk about policy that's more specific. Uh, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Sarah, how can people follow you on Twitter? That's Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And how could people either follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the Internet where you want to be found? <laughs> well, on Twitter, you can find me at Ben Brown Tweets. Uh, we also have a website, BenBrownForSenate.com. And all over social media, Facebook, Twitter at Ben Brown for Missouri. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.